we're going to be talking about, last week we talked about the necessity of the Bible, okay? That although God reveals Himself in a number of different ways through creation, through different modes throughout redemptive history, there is a special necessity placed upon the Holy Scripture. And a logical question that would come from that is, what are the Holy Scriptures? Can we know what the Holy Scriptures are? All right, and if you, if you have a cat, uh, confession... You'll notice chapter 2, paragraph 2 rather, is taken up with just a listing of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament under the name of the Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament which are these. And it lists all the books you have in your Bible. And then negatively, we have paragraph 3. The books commonly called Apocrypha not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the Scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be otherwise approved or made use of by man. Okay, And then in paragraphs 4 and 5, so we're going through 2, 3, 4, and 5 today, we're going to be looking at how the Scripture shows its authority and how we can know it to be Holy Scripture. Okay, so in starting today, When we think about what books should be in our Bibles and how we have confidence about the books that we have, what might be some, what are some arguments that you've heard that what we have may not be the books of Holy Scripture? Does my question make sense? Nicaea decided everything. Now, that's, that's good. And this is important because if you go to college or if you've ever been to college or you talk to people that are in college, uh, a lot of these things are being attacked by every form of authority. And the liberal church as well will talk about these things as if they're not important. So there's a very important argument here. Nicaea decided everything. That is, in the Council of Nicaea in 325 and 381 A.D., that a group of people got together and the strongest of them, okay, They decided what the church would believe. And united to that, sometimes you'll hear, at the time that the books were decided, which we're going to argue that wasn't actually, that never took place, but there were 2,000 books, you might hear. They were being decided on that could be part of the canon of Scripture. You'll hear things like that. You'll hear things like it took 500 years for the church to decide... What was supposed to be in the canon? Miss Nancy. Yes. So, what I mean is you often hear, have you ever heard the phrase that history is written by the winners? Right? That those who, those who won a particular battle, those who, were, who won in culture, they're the ones who got to write the history. Right? The underdog didn't write the history. And so what we've received is just... Because there were strong voices that overcame every other opinion in the early church. Okay? You'll, you'll hear things like that. And what you have to see is that none of those things are true. It presupposes that in 325 or 381, that 497 years or whatever it were, took place when the church finally accepted the canon... But I just want to put to you very plainly today in a small amount of time that if you look at the Old 
the oldest records that we have, that there were universally recognized books of Scripture, okay? We have what's called the Moratorian Fragment. I think I'm pronouncing that right. From around the 2nd century, that has a listing of all of 22 books of the New Testament, okay? So 22 of the 27 books that we have in the New Testament were absolutely clung to by the early church. Now, there's several reasons that we know that that's the case. First of all, early Christians, they like to put their books in what are called codexes, right? So what you look at when you go to the archaeological evidence, when you see what uh, Christians did in the first and second century, they for some reason like to take all the books of Paul and put them together, right? And Hebrews is included in that, by the way, in the early Christian mind, right? They like to take the New Testament books, put them together. They like to put Acts and Luke together. And they believed wholeheartedly that these were the authoritative words of God given to us in the New Covenant. This was early as the books were written. People believed that they were Scripture. Okay? But you might say, well, what about the other five books or so? Well, it's not as if those other five books, some were saying, these aren't Scripture at all. And some were saying they were. They just had some questions about them. And these books uh, that were disputed were James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 3 John. And Hebrews was sometimes brought up. Hebrews was brought up sometimes because the early Christians sometimes read Hebrews 6 and said, I don't know if this fits with the idea that once we're saved, we're continually preserved. It seems like it might be teaching that we lose our salvation. And so some voices, very few voices, expressed a little bit of apprehension to the book of Hebrews, but that was overcome very easily. The other books, James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John, I think it's very plausible because these books were so short, especially 2 and 3 John and 2 Peter, that they just weren't read that often in the early church, right? And you just ask Christians, like, when's the last time you read 2 and 3 John? We don't go to them very often, Right? These small books receive less of our attention. And that's probably part of the reason why there was a little bit of disputation because they just weren't read as often as other books. Now, there were books that were used by the churches, really two of them, which would be the Shepherd of Hermas and the uh, Epistle of Clement, okay? But nobody thought that these books were Scripture. Nobody thought they were Scripture. In fact, in those books themselves, they say that they're not Scripture. But in the Bible itself, we have many times attestation that the books that we have in the New Testament, the writers thought they were writing Scripture, and other writers thought that the other writers were writing Scripture. Okay? Where, where do we see things like that? Where do we see writers of the New Testament? That's right, yeah. So, turn with me to 2 Peter, chapter 3. Uh, this is a very clear attestation. I, I think this and uh, one other text in 1 Timothy are the clearest attestation that the writers of the New Testament recognized that not just themselves, but other people that wrote New Testament books were actually writing Scripture. Notice what Peter says. Um, we'll start in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, 
since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So we, we see here that Paul wrote letters, and Peter's aware of that. As he does in all his letter when he speaks of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's no doubt in Peter's mind that when he thinks of Paul's writings, he puts them in the same category as inspired Old Testament scripture. Another text I think is extremely clear is 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This takes a little more digging, perhaps, that we would see it. Um, and we've gone over it before. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we have here in verse 18. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and... The laborer deserves his wages. So we see that you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. He's quoting the Old Testament that nobody disputed was the word of God. But where do we find the laborer deserves his wages? Maybe you have a footnote in your Bible. Luke 10, 7. Isn't that amazing? That when Paul thought about the Scripture and trying to prove a point, he says the Scriptures say this, here's an Old Testament, and here is something of equal authority written by Who? Luke. Was Luke an apostle even? No. Luke wasn't even an apostle. We have the canon of Scripture being very clearly attested in the early days. And even in the mind of Paul, something else that you'll often encounter as an argument is that the writers of New Testament Scripture had no idea that they were writing Scripture. That's pretty false on its face. Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians that whatever I write to you, I'm writing as a commandment of the Lord do you know what else he says? He says, anybody that disregards this as not a commandment of the Lord, he's to be disregarded. Right? That is, if somebody doesn't accept my writing as the authoritative word of God, he's not really a Christian. It, it's shocking claim. So, I, I want to set forth first, really briefly, and if you want to go through this in more detail, I brought this book it's the most helpful book I've ever read on the subject, Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. He goes much further in depth than I ever could. Or look up his lectures. They're wonderful. I just want to make it clear to you today. And if you have questions about it, we can go in more detail later. The canon of Scripture that we have has always been the attested canon accepted by the church of God. Okay, That's the first thing that I want to get very clear today. Now... Second thing is I want to go through how the canon is established. So, if we are somewhat clear in our mind that the books that we have in the Bible are Scripture, by what process did they become canon? Okay. Now, when I use the word canon, any author that writes any book, when he's finished with that book, it's added to his canon. Okay. And the Bible, as the breathed-out Word of God has a canon of Scripture, of writing, that he has. Okay, So, there are several different methods, and I'm going to propose three broad methods of how the canon is established. And the first is that canon is established by the community. 
The community determines what Holy Scripture is. Can we think of any examples of that? One should be very clear to us. Let's say it another way. The church determines what Holy Scripture is. I'm saying in history. I'm saying not in the Bible. Yeah, thank you. Huh? Nicaea would be one if that was true, and it's not, because they were always accepted before that. Nicaea had nothing to do with the choosing of the canon. Roman Catholic Church. Thank you. Yes. The Roman Catholic Church says very clearly in their doctrine that they are the ones that decide what Holy Scripture is, and we see this most clearly in the Council of Trent, don't we? What did they do in the Council of Trent? They added the Apocrypha, right? Tobit, Maccabees, all these different books, to the Holy Canon, because they say that the church as a community has the authority to recognize something as canon, okay? So this is the Roman Catholic view that the church has outside authority to determine the canon infallibly, okay? Now, the problem with timing there, right? Because timing's important. When was the canon established? We make a big deal about saying, well, if it was 500 years after the writing of the New Testament, that makes our heart palpitate a little bit. Well, what about the Roman Catholic Church? 1,500 years. We didn't have the whole canon. Maybe they could add more in the future. That's one aspect of a community-determined model. A second would be historical critical. And that's what Joey brought up earlier. Okay? That the winners in history, the strongest voices at the Council of Nicaea, determined what Scripture was. People accepted all sorts of different books. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, all these different books. The Gospel of the Wife of Jesus, right? All these things were read by Christians, and it was only the strongest in the room that decided the 22 books. As we've already seen and shown, that's, that's false, but that is one community-determined model, okay? Um, a third is called canonical criticism, Okay, um, and so this is the church formed the authoritative canon through revision, redaction, and harmonization. And you might have heard this before. So it wasn't the original writings of the, of the authors of Scripture that was actually Scripture. It went through a process of editing by the church. Right? And if you read any commentaries that are liberal, they'll talk about this, that somebody added this phrase and added this sentence in. But the final form of that, that is what Holy Scripture is. And the fourth community-determined model is neo-orthodoxy. Anybody, neo-orthodoxy? Do we have an idea what that is? So this is, car, what's that? Yeah, yeah. And as far as I understand it, it's named neo-orthodoxy because in Germany especially, liberal scholarship had taken such a root that Karl Barth and Brunner, um, they were the neo-orthodox scholars of the day, but they had a totally different view of how the canon was formed. The canon was formed in neo-orthodoxy, not by a community-determined model, but the individual. That is, the neo-orthodox believe that there's nothing special inherently about the Bible. The Bible as a written word is not the word of God, but it becomes the Word of God when you have a God experience reading that Word. Okay? So, who determines the canon there? I, yeah, I do. Right? And according to the Neo-Orthodox, there's nothing special about the 
66 books of the Bible. I could be reading Moby Dick, perhaps, and have a God encounter, and that becomes canon to me. Okay? We reject these things, hopefully. Okay? But these are the community-determined model. There's also historically-determined models. Um, There's one more liberal and one more conservative. One is you you find a canon within the canon. What do I mean by that? Um, Has anybody heard of the Jesus Seminar? What what do they do at the Jesus Seminar? That's right. Yep. Brother Joey, as he said, the quest for the historical Jesus is the Jesus Seminar. That we can't trust what the Bible says about Jesus because obviously, as liberal scholars would say, right, I speak as a madman. Miracles can't be true. So those must have been added in. Virgin birth can't be true. So we need to get behind the text somehow. We need to do archaeological research to find out who Jesus really was. I found an example of this on our TV the other day, looking through something on Disney, and it was like, who was the real Jesus? And some 21st century scholar was going to tell me who the real Jesus was, right? And so, that's the idea of this historically determined model, that we look at the Bible and we try to figure out, well, what was the original thing that was written here? Because obviously people have messed with the text. Right? Or else we wouldn't have miracles. We wouldn't have all these supernatural things. And the, the second historically determined model is more accepted, and this is probably the common evangelical way of looking at how the canon was accepted. It, and that is to say, we look back, and if we can prove that the books in the scripture were apostolic in origin, okay? that is, if an apostle wrote them, or it was overseen by an apostle, then we can know that it is Scripture, okay? Now, all of that that we just went through, the the problem with all of that is that all of these models show the authority to determine canon is insufficient, okay? It's based on something else. God does not clearly show that his word is the word of God, but some outside authority has to rubber stamp what God has actually said the Catholic Church says that the church has the authority to determine what Scripture is. Um, Scholars say that scholars have the authority to determine what Scripture is. Okay, And what we're proposing today is is the oldest model. It's the self-authenticating model of Scripture. Now, the self-authenticating model of Scripture cannot be used to go to an unbeliever and try to convince them that this is the Word of God because of these evidences. Why, why can't that be? Because the unbeliever doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. Because they're folly to him. Right? But the self-authenticating model, it proposes that the ultimate authority for deciding what Scripture is, is in Scripture itself. And that Scripture self-authenticates itself. Okay? What else self-authenticates itself? What other kind of revelation is self-authenticating? Maybe I'll back up. What do I mean by self-authenticating? Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And what I mean by self-authenticating goes along with that. 
that something that is self-authenticating is known by itself to be true. Okay? There's no outside source that needs to say that this is true and to rubber stamp it. Okay? General revelation is self-authenticating. Okay? We talked about general revelation last week. That God, he clearly shows humanity, doesn't he? Who he is and his divine attributes and his power. He clearly declares in Psalm 19 the glory of God from heaven, right? There is no need for anybody to say, well, is God really speaking through general revelation? Does that make sense to you? It's not authenticated by anybody. The Bible clearly tells us that the revelation given by God through nature, it speaks to its own authentication. It authenticates itself, right? God speaks clearly through revelation. No other authority needs to say it's true because God clearly shows it. And the same thing is true in Holy Scripture. Um, John Calvin has a really good quote um, that I'm not going to quote perfectly, but he says something like this, that if somebody comes to you and says, how do we know what Scripture is without the church telling us what Scripture is? John Calvin says, that's the same thing as asking, how do we know black from white or dark from light? It self-authenticates itself, right? We don't need outside authority to know these things. Okay. You have any questions about that? Uh, scripture self-authenticates itself. We're going to show how it does that, okay? Do we have any questions about the concept of self-authenticating? Okay. This is where we come to paragraph 4 and 5 of our confession. And this, paragraph 4, is what we just talked about. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. Okay? It it communicates its own authority. Paragraph 5 We may be induced, this is how we see the scripture self-authenticating itself. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. Okay, So the church does work in this. Notice that. The church receives the canon and it moves the people of God to embrace it. Notice what it says next. And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies. The entire perfections thereof and arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself. Notice that. Evidence itself to be the word of God. So, notice what's being said there in in modern language. When we read the Bible, we know it's the Word of God because of the substance of it, right? No human being would write a book that tells us that the only way to be made right with God is for us to be absolutely perfect in all of our dealings or else we depend wholly on another. No human book would say you need to cast all of your self-righteousness out and trust on a perfect mediator. No human book would describe God in the way that the Bible describes God. 
Joey's going to go through in a couple of weeks the Holy Trinity. And how many problems that causes our natural, weak minds. A human book would not teach such a thing. It would teach a God that could be understood by us. The Bible doesn't do these things. You might be aware of Bodie Bauckham, and maybe Joey could talk about it more. But we, we have in this book the same doctrines talked about over a multiple thousand year period, written in three different languages on, what do we have here? Three, three different continents, right? These things go together and they, they self testify to the fact that this is the Word of God. We can't agree as a church living in the same little town about the simplest things, but the Bible, as a 66-book document, it has, it has harmony throughout all of its doctrine and in all of its parts. We never find a New Testament writer looking at the Old Testament and say, well, Moses was really wrong about this. It assumes an organic unity in the whole, and we can... We can see that. I have too many things up here. I buried my Bible. Um, the, the organic unity of the Old and New Testament, this is what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, isn't it? When it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Okay, So, what I'm trying to get at is the Scripture has divine attributes about it. God wrote it. We can know God wrote it because it speaks in a way, has a consistency in a way, has a beauty in a way that no human being could ever do. Especially, yeah, that's right. And I forget how many authors there are. Does anybody know that off the top of their head? 30-something authors. Of Holy Scripture, probably close to that. Agreeing wholly in all these doctrines, this attests to the divine attributes of Holy Scripture that God moved holy men to write. Oh, that, that's true. Yeah. We, mm-hmm. Yeah, a sycamore farmer or sycamine or something farmer. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we have farmers, we have scholars, right? We have uh, Nehemiah. Yeah, brother. Oh, brother. Oh. No, that, that's right. And again, that, that's right. We have Moses writing about what happened 2,000 years before Moses in the Garden of Eden, the serpent being cast out, right? Men and women being cast out of the garden and the book of Revelation, ending this 4,000 years later. Something like that, right? It bookends all of that, where the serpent is cast out of the garden forever. Man is brought back into the garden. And there's many such things we could talk about that shows that the Holy Scripture have divine attributes, divine qualities, I should say, that show God's working. But there's... The thing that's essential for the the self, um, I'm forgetting my words. Uh, the uh, self-authenticating model. So not only does it, but the church to accept it 
God, being superintended by the Holy Spirit, has to make these books go to the people of God, right? That there's providential exposure of all of these books. Does that make sense? So, the people, the churches that accepted all these 27 books in the very early days of the church, one of the reasons they did so is because they, they went so clearly throughout the empire, right? Sometimes you'll be asked in seminary or in college or something, if we found, it seems like in the New Testament, that there's a third book, letter to the Corinthians, right? If we found it somewhere in an archaeological dig, would we include it in the New Testament? I think, I think the answer is no, we wouldn't. Because the church of God did not receive those things, right? God in his providence didn't see it fit for that to be given to all the people of God. So, this is something that's very important. And the third thing is apostolic origin. Okay? That all the books of the New Testament were superintended by the apostles, right? That is, not all of them were written by the apostles, right? What, what books weren't written by apostles? Luke, Acts, both written by Luke. Mark, maybe Hebrews. No, yeah. Well, it's written by Paul. Yeah, yeah. The Lord's brother, which it seems that he, he did have apostleship. But the, the point is clear. Not all these books were written by apostles, right? And we have, if you read any commentaries, they'll say that Second Peter wasn't really written by Peter. You read all these different things. Now, I agree with liberal scholars. If 2 Peter wasn't written by Peter and it says it was, then we have to toss it out of the canon, right? But that's why we believe it was written by Peter. But I want us to see that the very clear attestation that even though some of these books weren't written by the apostolic hand, they were overseen by the apostles. Even when you read in the early church documents talking about the book of Mark, okay, they, they say that Mark was in Rome with Peter and he was, he was writing down Peter's testimony in the book of Mark. That's what the, the earliest church said. Who, who, who oversaw Luke, Luke in, the, in, this, in his writings? What apostle? Huh? Paul, that's right. How do we know that? Yeah, they traveled together and... and it's really shocking when you read through the book of Acts, if you pay attention to the pronouns, it's they went, they did this, they did that. And then in Luke's, in Acts 16, the pronouns changed to we. And it seems pretty clear that Luke became a disciple at that point in the Apostle Paul's journey, and he continued with Paul. And it's really quite shocking when you read, I, I can't remember the guy's name, forgive me, I can send it out later if I find it. But when you look at the early church testimony about Paul, it says really clearly that Paul loved to read the book of Luke and to preach through the book of Luke. Luke obvious, or Paul obviously put a stamp on that. And what we see in 1 Timothy, that Paul says what Luke wrote in Luke 10, 17 is holy scripture, right? And I want us to see, and I should have brought my whiteboard for this, that all three of these things go together. That is the divine qualities of Scripture, the apostolic origin of Scripture, and the corporate reception of Scripture. They go together and in such a way that they reinforce one another. Okay? 
this is, this is going to be difficult. But what I mean by that is that if a book has divine qualities about it, and it seems to be in line with Old Testament Scripture and with the Gospel preached in the New Testament, what's going to happen with a document like that? The church is going to receive it, right? It's going to, it's going to spread to other churches. And we're going to notice that this must be apostolic in origin because it agrees and has divine qualities about it. Let's say... The opposite is, well, not the opposite, but another way of looking at it. This book that I hold in my hand, if we're first century Christians, I know that the Apostle Paul wrote it because he wrote it in front of me, let's say. Therefore, I know that it has divine qualities about it, and the church should receive it, right? Look at it from the third angle. If the church receives, as a whole group, a document and says that It's scripture, we can assume that it's because it has divine qualities about it and it's apostolic in origin. And so these things, all superintended by the Holy Scripture, show how God in his providence provided um, a way that the scripture could be by the church. Does that make sense? I know that's a lot to go through in 35 minutes or so. But, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God, individually and personally? We can look at all these things, and they're very helpful. Chapter f- paragraph 5 of chapter 1 ends by saying this. We already read that it doth abundantly, through everything we've talked about, evidence itself to be the Word of God, yet notwithstanding... Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. The ultimate way that all of us individually know that the Bible is the word of God is because the Holy Spirit has told us it's the word of God. Right? And, huh? By faith. That's right. And, And we might find that to be Not enough, because we live in an age that puts such a high emphasis on our own human reason and to work through our own reason. But what's the problem with that biblically? My reason is darkened and tainted by sin. I convince myself to sin every day. Not because it's reasonable, but because I, I choose to make it reasonable in my mind. The Holy Spirit has to overcome our wicked, natural tendency to think sinful thoughts and to have sinful judgments and to convince us of the Word of God. Now, my personal testimony doesn't mean anything, but I've told many of you, uh, one of the first things that the Holy Spirit did in my heart to bring me to Christ is I went and bought a Bible at a Dollar General and I went home to read it to argue with my friend about how it can't be true. And I sat on my floor and I read it, not at all wanting Christianity to be true. In fact, knowing it wasn't true in my sinful mind. And the thing that convinced me, the thing that overcame me, I should say, I was reading through chapter 6 of Matthew, and I just remember the overwhelming realization that this is true. It's true. And I I think that that's our experience. That's every Christian's experience. When they encounter the Word of God, they accept it as infallibly the Word of God. The Holy Spirit must work in us to convince us of these things. 
Do you have any questions or thoughts? Hear my voice, yes. Yes. Well, so that just to testify even greater to the Holy Spirit's work, like we know it's the Bible because it's it's our Abba. That's right. That that's right. And that is the perfect text to bring up, brother. My sheep hear my voice and, and that triangle, I didn't draw the diagram for you, but these divine qualities, the apostolic origin and the providential um, reception of the church, right? It's because my sheep hear my voice, right? They know it's the voice of the shepherd, therefore they receive it and accept it. Any other thoughts or questions? Last thought I have today, and I hope this is helpful to you to some degree, to know that the Bible is the Word of God, and to have some artillery in your head when you hear the voice of the enemy or enemies saying it's not, but how, how does this lead us to doxology? How does this lead us to praise? Because it should not be just a bare academic exercise for us. You deal with work you love and trust it and have assurance in it and believe that what he says is true. That's right. We, we have a solid foundation which to build our religion on. I don't have to rely on my own my own intellect, my own power. I don't have to rely on some scholar to tell me that this is the Word of God or it's not the Word of God because of their research. The Holy Spirit testifies to us that this is the Word of God, and more than that, we have the Word of God. What a wonderful thing for us to believe and realize that I have everything I need given to me by God Himself in these books. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. And, and people die, and I think this is what you're saying, people die for lies all the time. But nobody dies for something that they know is a lie. Right? These men, all the apostles, Stephen, they gave their life for something that they knew to be true. Right? Um, do we have any other questions, thoughts, brother? Mm. Yeah, that's right. That, that the word is not written in a vacuum, but it, it has an explicit purpose to go out and not return void. That's right. We have endless promises in the word, and we know that they're true. That's right. And we can have confidence in God. Amen. That's right. All the diversity and the intricacies of nature 
That's right. That's right, brother. If, if God could preserve the nation of Israel with all of its sins to bring forth Jesus Christ out of it, he can preserve his Holy Scripture as well, right? Um, anything else? Any other questions, comments? Yeah, please. Oh, the, yeah. And the, yeah, the divine qualities, right? Yeah, and I forget the the number, but how many prophecies there were of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament that were absolutely fulfilled? It's uh, an astonishing number. I said it was written in three languages, but you're right. We usually say Hebrew and Greek, but there is Aramaic. Yes. So, what is Okay, so I believe the Aramaic is kind of a mixture of Babylonian and Hebrew. Am I right about that? Yeah. So, from the Babylonian captivity and things like that, they kind of melded their language together and made Aramaic which is probably what was spoken by the Hebrews in Jesus' time to some degree. There's a, there's a little bit in the New Testament, and yes, Daniel is made up of a lot of Aramaic. Yes. I, I don't know if there's any other sections, to be honest with you. But Daniel for sure, and there are quotations from Aramaic, and, the, and perhaps Matthew was written in Aramaic, some would say. Um, yeah, I know. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying someone's there. Anything else? Okay. Well, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you. In the name of your Son, we thank you.